Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The Pocket Guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new Pocket Guide today. And now here's your host for Caring on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Caring on the Go. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from the AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, to discuss some key articles in this episode from the October 2021 issue of Caring, including notes on physician assistance, the vaccination mandates, hypoglycemia, and a lot more. Dr. Gaelic is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice with Shepherd Pratt Health System. She is a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia, and their caregivers in long-term care. Dr. Gaelic, welcome back yet again for another episode of Caring on the Go. Thanks, Wayne. I'm so pleased to be here today. So, Dr. Gaelic, uh, what a wonderful issue, October 2021. Uh, These 20 pages of Caring present such a variety of important information not just for those of us who are working in post-acute and long-term care, but for anyone really dedicated to improving patient care. Uh, Your Caring Collaborative editorial, which I always like to start with because it's always so impactful, on interdisciplinary care is truly welcomed as we have learned over the past year that it takes a village to care for patients and residents with complex medical and behavioral needs. Although I don't want to take away any value from reading your article, what are some highlights um, around the the interdisciplinary team and, and your thoughts on that? Well, it, it surely does take a team, Wayne. Um, 50 years ago, um, what used to be the Institute of Medicine, now the Academy of National Academy of Medicine, uh, kind of saw this and, and called for team-based care. Um, the, and the goal was to try to minimize fragmentation of healthcare delivery and to improve the quality of patient care. And in the 1990s with OBRA, federal regulations came out for nursing homes specifically that required an interdisciplinary approach in developing and implementing care plans for residents in post-acute and long-term care settings. And I, I find that... Um, Sometimes um, we throw around the concept of team-based care, Hmm. but if you actually talk with people, they mean different things when they say it. And so that was really what motivated me to write this um, particular editorial. 
And the, the first thing, often people confuse multidisciplinary teams versus interdisciplinary teams, and they're actually quite different. Right. So a multidisciplinary team is a team that consists of members from different disciplines who really draw from their individual discipline knowledge, but they do it in a separate parallel fashion to meet patient needs. Um, multidisciplinary teams have the advantage of efficiency, but they tend to not have um, adequate communication structures for team decision-making. And there may be redundancies in terms of patient assessment and care where different clinicians or different providers are coming in and asking the patient the same questions multiple times and yep. doing the same exam over and over again. Absolutely. Alternatively, interdisciplinary teams include members of different disciplines and the patient and family working all together in a collaborative fashion toward a common goal for that particular patient. The patient's needs are at the forefront. The other thing that's um, really helpful about interdisciplinary teams, but can also make them challenging, is that they're shared leadership and shared decision-making. And to be highly effective, interdisciplinary teams require time together, building of trust, good communication, collaboration, and consensus building. And there has to be mutual respect of different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So um, there are a, a variety of barriers um, to kind of overcome um, to work as an interdisciplinary team. Some of them relate to time um, and lack of reimbursement for some of this um, interdisciplinary work. We can get around some of that, I think, uh, with technology, and we're a little more well-practiced with that now um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The other opportunity I think we have um, is to have more interdisciplinary experiences in our education. Um, because right now, we're still um, educating people in their own specific discipline silos. And we might have an interdisciplinary experience or day, but not really doing education together as a team. So I think that that's another opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least, um, just focusing on um, good communication, shared decision making, and keeping the focus on the patient. I, I also had an opportunity to get feedback from um, some of my interdisciplinary colleagues at AMDA, Dr. Carrie Levy out in Colorado, um, Phyllis Famoello, who's a dietitian, uh, Paige Hector, who's associate editor for Caring for the Ages, um, and a social worker, and Travis Neal, who's a phys physician assistant and also a member of Caring's editorial advisory board. So right. if you want to hear about some of their perspectives, I'd encourage you to read the article. Hmm. I encourage everybody to read the article, frankly. But, um, uh, uh, you know, as you're speaking, I'm 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 channeling you and thinking about um, two major tenants in uh, well in geriatric care, but really in patient care. One is that uh, you know if there's a uh, a problem with an older adult acutely, medication, 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 and if there's a problem with a system, communication, communication, and communication. So I highly echo the value the interdisciplinary team has on maintaining um, adequate communication in the care of uh, in the care of anyone, frankly. 
totally agree. The, the other thing to think about is sometimes we may have had a less than ideal experience with a member from a particular discipline, and we shouldn't base all future interactions on that past interaction and meet everybody really where they are. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's get to some of the uh, the the really wonderful articles that we're spotlighting in this uh, episode from the uh, October 2021 issue of Caring. Um, freelance writer Randy, Randy Datinga leads off with a front page article entitled, Few Physician Assistants Work in Geriatrics, But Experts Say They're Desperately Needed. I learned so much from this article. Um, uh, you know, why don't, Dr. Gaelic, why don't physician assistants play a major role in post-acute and long-term geriatric care? You know, there's an article by Dr., or there's a there's an article referenced by Dr. Paul Katz, past president of the society and an eminent geriatrician. Um, you know, the role of physician assistants in our field is spotlighted in this article through the work of some notable members. You you mentioned Travis uh, Neal. Um, tell us more about this focus in the October issue of Caring. Sure. Well, we know that, as you mentioned, there's very few physician assistants who are practicing in long-term care facilities. So it's estimated that fewer than 1% of PAs work in long-term care. Wow. And just... 7% of PA students reported an interest in geriatrics. And at least from my experience and, and from talking with other physician assistant colleagues, the content that they're receiving in school may not um, have as strong of a clinical component in geriatrics. Mm. Um, and uh, maybe a little less in terms of primary care some physicians come out of experience um, in, in the military um, or in, um, in emergency medicine and might be attracted to uh, less to primary care and geriatrics and more to um, more uh, uh, technically based and more emergent based uh, practices. Mm. But it's, it's really an area where uh, geriatrics is really an area where their uh, skills and expertise can be used well. Um, there, there's differences state to state regarding prescribing privileges for PAs. Right. Um, some states allow that, others uh, require some co-signatures, but they're able to and trained to take patient histories, perform physical exams, um, they can make diagnoses, order, interpret laboratory tests and imaging, work to develop care plans, and write discharge summaries. Um, and as with nurse practitioners, there's certain things in post-acute and long-term care settings that they might not be able to do, such as sign particular paperwork or to do the um, required visits um, every 60 days. But um, there's so much they can do. and. Um, you know, I think in interviewing some of the PAs for this article, what we heard time and time again is they're available, they're at the site, and it's so much better to have um, a clinician there who can go and evaluate the patient and come up with a treatment plan rather than trying to deal with this over the phone. Um, the PAs that I've always worked with um, work wonderfully um, in a collaborative fashion and as a team. and um, they've just been a pleasure to, to work with. And I'd love to, to see more uh, enter the field. I, I think the folks out in Colorado 
uh, we could get some clues from them because they really have some amazing uh, physician assistants that are part of the Colorado chapter of AMDA. Oh, Colorado serves as such a role model for so many different things in post-acute long-term care. But this article, I think, just just highlights the society's dedication to wanting more physician assistance in the post-acute long-term care realm and, and um, you know, has done that by its bylaw change, which welcomed advanced practitioners to, uh, um, to society memberships. So that 1% number is just astounding. And um, it 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 really has to grow it most certainly does and now a word from our sponsor u.s post-acute care let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations now more than ever post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients at u.s post-acute care our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient we help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. So our next topic is on vaccination mandates. Um, you know, issues around COVID-19 continue to maintain a strong poll position in our care of residents, patients, and each other in post-acute long-term care. Staff writer Joanne Caldy, in her front-page article entitled AMDA and Others Weigh In on Vaccine Mandates, discusses how organizations are trying to increase vaccination rates, including those among staff. AMDA has issued a consensus statement along with six other national organizations, but there is still controversy. Oi, tell us more about this article. I'm especially concerned, um, as you know, I think we all are, about uh, the, um, the, the idea of a mass exodus of certified nursing assistants. Yeah, we definitely don't want that. The nursing assistants are the, the backbone of any post-acute and long-term care um, organization, and we you know, rely on them for so much and don't want them leaving. The, the society's consensus statement with the other uh, national organizations stated that hospitals, nursing homes, other healthcare facilities should require employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 as a condition of employment. And, and obviously there are exceptions um, for um, sincerely held religious um, beliefs or medical exemptions. And oftentimes those are, are uh, dealt with um, using a um, frequent testing to, to make sure employees are safe to come to work. Mm. Uh, so after AMDA um, put this statement out, shortly after uh, President Biden announced that his administration would require nursing home staff to receive COVID-19 vaccines in order to continue fund receive funding from Medicare and Medicaid. Right, right. Um, it 
you know, it is a tough issue, and I think the article does a nice job, is that you can't just have a mandate alone. You really have to engage and involve stakeholders to improve um, vaccination rates before implementing the vaccination policy. Um, and the risk, I, you know, I, I guess that some places are facing is a workforce challenge. Um, and there was um, some interviews done with Lori Porter, who's the CEO of the National Association of Healthcare Assistants. Right. And she indicated that um, we're already seeing a loss of a large number of certified nursing assistants and that she fears that with the vaccination mandates, we may see more. Um, and in reality, CNAs are, are finding that they have other career options available to them. Uh, even things such in retail, which now are having higher salaries associated with them. And um, so we, we really need to do more, I think, to advocate on, on behalf of um, the nursing assistants that are working in our settings in terms of salary, time off, listening to their concerns, um, you know, addressing those in an individual basis. Um, there, there was an example in here of one facility um, in New Cortland in Philadelphia that was early, back in February, uh, implemented a vaccine mandate. But they did it in a really positive way um, with a lot of sessions with employees and role models, kind of seeing other people get the vaccine and very personalized, individualized discussions. And while they did lose some people, um, the staff that remained um, was significant. And um, the, the, the staff that remained did say that they felt more safe and comfortable coming to work knowing that everyone um, had been vaccinated. You know, uh, I am sure that all of our listeners are thinking to themselves, you know, for years we've been talking about the importance of certified nursing assistants and, um, and now we really do need to put um, emphasis, well we've needed for a long time, but now we truly do need to put, put emphasis on, um, on promoting this, this part of the medical field. Uh, and Lori Porter and, and the AMDA board have had a number of, uh, of interactions um, towards, towards doing just that. And to remind our listeners, in uh, last year's House of Delegate meeting at the annual virtual symposia, um, the House of Delegates uh, passed two resolutions introduced by the Kentucky State Chapter on advocating for frontline staff not just certified nursing assistants, but nurses as well, but though the needs of certified nursing assistants are well understood by now and, uh, and need to be promoted. So um, I welcomed uh, this article by Joanne, and I, I think it's a, it's a very good read for a summary of, um, of where we are right now. The, the other thing to note, Wayne, is the top read article um, from the past year um, was related to um, supporting nursing assistants. Yeah, it was by Joanne Caldy. So um, more will be coming out about that um, later. But um, I think um, people are really understanding the um, importance and the dedication of the work of um, all frontline caregivers in the country. Well, we appreciate the fact that caring is helping us to uh, to continue to maintain focus for sure. Um, 
Our last article um, that we want to spotlight, Dr. Gaelic, is on uh, hypoglycemia and the management of diabetes, especially for our medically complex older adults in long-term care, just continues to not be well understood and unfortunately still not well managed, despite all of our best efforts. But society past president, and I think of her as a guru on diabetes management, Dr. Nashira Panja and colleagues uh, have written an article that uh, leads us through some new options to simplify the treatment of severe hypoglycemia. I will add that I moderated a recent uh, JAMDA on the go episode with Dr. Panja. And, you know, hypoglycemia is a real threat. We all know that. But, you know, um, the real mantra now is that it should have as great a focus, maybe even a greater focus, than hyperglycemia in this population. But, you know, clue us in on uh, what more this article brings us in the October 2021 issue of Caring. Sure. Dr. Panja writes beautifully um, with her team, and they all did a, a really nice job of outlining um, principles of care related to uh, preventing and treating severe hypoglycemia. And when we're talking about severe hypoglycemia, we're referring to an episode that's characterized by an altered mental or physical status that requires some type of assistance so that the patient or the resident can't treat themselves, but someone needs to intervene to treat the hypoglycemia. And we know that nearly 34% um, of long-term care residents have diabetes. And um, we're you know, seeing um, episodes of severe hypoglycemia and you know, all the, the risks to mortality and um, morbidity with, with these patients. Um, we also know age is a big risk factor. So individuals older than 70 report more episodes of hypoglycemia. And then there's a variety of patient-specific factors that exacerbate hypoglycemia, such as the presence of, multi of multiple comorbidities, cognitive impairment, they can't necessarily report if they don't feel well, um, impaired renal function, and then, of course, we know uh, residents in post-acute and long-term care often have variable appetite and food intake, and, and may even have some dysphagia. So um, hypoglycemia has several potential causes. We talked about age already. Also kind of inappropriately tight control of diabetes, um, insulin administration errors. Um, and one thing we need to try to stay away from is frequent or persistent use of sliding scale insulin. Right. I know right. some patients when they go to uh, for an acute care hospitalization, they may be using sliding scale insulin in the hospital to to try to manage their diabetes. And sometimes this is, uh, they're discharged on this and we should really be looking at that um, and trying to get rid of it um, as soon as we can upon their return. Um, we also need to be cautious about the use of sulfonylureas and obviously polypharmacy, um, you know, different medications that can um, increase the risk of, of uh, hypoglycemia. You know, I, I think for me the take-home or a take-home is that despite the standards that we go by in, in uh, managing diabetes, it still is a, a need for a highly individualized plan of care. And for, you know, for those individuals who are thinking, uh, especially with regard to these medically complex older adults, 
um, in a unique setting that hemoglobin A1Cs under 7, uh, you know, are what we need to do. You know, Dr. Panja would be the first one to stand up on her, um, you know, on her podium and say, look at the entire patient, the entire resident, and think to yourself, and let me help provide some guidelines for you that um, hemoglobins um, may, may appropriately need to be much higher than what you're thinking. Right, right. The, the other thing Dr. Panja brought up was that caregivers are often uncomfortable, um, whether it's in the facility or family caregivers when the patient returns home about uh, dealing with hypoglycemia. And yep, yep. when they, there was a, a study done uh, published in 2017 that showed only 13% of caregivers could successfully prepare and administer a full dose of glucagon during yep. a simulated emergency. So she talks about some new products that are out, um, glucagon that can be delivered nasally or some that exists in a, a pre-filled syringe. So some, some good options there. You know, this just gets back to your, your editorial, right? The value of the interdisciplinary team on communication and education of, um, of not just our patients and residents, but also on caregivers. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, what's amazing about diabetes, especially for a caregiver or a family member, is that is to help them understand that um, diabetes needs change or diabetes management changes as folks continue to age and become a little bit more complex. And we need to help folks understand, um, you know, these transitions or these evolutions so that they won't be caught up on, but this is the way it's always been kind of thinking. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. So, <laughs> Dr. Gaelic, you know, while, while these spotlighted articles have, you know, provided, you know, amazingly important and timely information, um, uh, let's not forget about, you know, the other pages. Pages 1 through 20 are just chock full of, of stuff that requires some honorable mentions from the October 2021 issue of Caring. Dr. Stephen Levinson writes his first article for his Dr. Steve column, and his expertise in, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, everything post-acute long-term care is evident in his discussion of addressing medication use in post-acute long-term care. Paige Hector writes about mourning um, with some additional thoughts by Dr. Leah Watson, um, uh, former California State Chapter President and National Leader in Leadership. Um, uh, Dr. Mike Wasserman talks about evidence-based practice through the Delphi process. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Jerry Winokur talks about geriatricians. Spoiler alert, we don't retire. Um, and the <laughs> caring staff writers round out the October issue um, with such wonderful articles on a variety of topics in post-acute long-term care. All I can say is, wow, huh? Well, I have to tell you, when it came time to decide which articles to discuss this month, it was a little, little bit hard to select them. It's just so uh, we, we hope that you, you go and read all the other great articles in Caring this month. And we're, we just um, sent our uh, November-December issue off to uh, be typeset and all those good things. So well, more is coming down the pipe. I can't <laughs> wait to talk with you about that. Um, and under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect 
the wonderful work, as we have discussed uh, today, being done by the Society for Post-Acute Long-Term Care Medicine leaders, members, and communities. Uh, please take a look, uh, enjoy the read of the October 2021 issue. And Dr. Gaelic, thank you once again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. I'm thrilled to be here, Wayne, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> References for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Caring on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care.